Welcome to Community Connection, a podcast produced by Pine Tree Institute, focusing on how our understanding of trauma-informed care and positive relationships can help improve the lives of our children, our families, and our communities. This is your host, Dr. Larry McCullough, Executive Director of Pine Tree Institute, and I'm delighted to welcome you to today's podcast, which features a conversation with Dr. Stephanie Grant. Dr. Grant is trained as a developmental psychologist and is licensed as a professional counselor. She is currently the director of the REACH Parent-Child Program at Development Enhancement Behavioral Health in Holland, Michigan. She holds separate master's degrees in marriage and family therapy and psychology and a PhD in lifespan developmental psychology. Her clinical and research interests have focused on working uh, with infants and children with attachment concerns and trauma histories, specifically those who have adoption or foster care backgrounds. She's worked as a clinician, as a professor, as a researcher, and I think very importantly for our conversation today, she has lived practical experience as a foster and adoptive parent herself. Dr. Grant, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So uh, as many of our listeners know, for the past several years, Pine Tree programs have focused on the areas of adverse childhood experiences or ACEs, positive experiences that can help address them, and the concept of bringing a trauma-informed approach to the work we do with children and families. And I know that this has been a big part of your work as well. So I'm I'm just curious as we begin, what what you what brought you into this work and what is it about it that you feel is so important? Originally it wasn't intentional. I was working on my doctorate and looking at um, stress and arousal and how parenting kind of impacted that in an infant population. Um, shortly after finishing that work, I was doing inpatient psychiatric work and was a lead therapist on a pediatric unit and saw that so many of the kiddos that we were servicing um, had very significant trauma histories. And then continued to teach and do some research, but started a private practice after leaving the hospital. And again, kind of just started getting a lot of clients in there that had those trauma histories. And I saw the research kind of overlap and a lot of it go back to that really early infant development or prenatal work. And then at the same time, we started fostering. So we had one kiddo already that was biological. And when he was about three and a half, we started fostering and all the worlds just sort of collided. Um, And so I was getting that professional experience and the personal experience and the data and all of that from all of these different directions and saw the overlaps. Um, And then it was when our oldest adopted daughter um, was about to start kindergarten that I had a little moment of panic and went, oh my gosh, her teachers have no idea what to do with her Um, and started moving out of the um, clinical work kind of more 100% of the time. Oh, wow. I shouldn't say 100%. I was teaching and doing clinical at that point and um, started doing more advocacy and then educating the educators uh, at that point. And it was kind of personal and a little bit selfish um, originally. And, but that was several years ago now. 
Well, what a what a great background, and you know, I I think you know one of my other questions, which you really have sort of always already started to address, is I was thinking that your experience as an adoptive and foster parent would have had a lot of influence on what you're doing, and so sounds like that was a very direct influence. What I'm curious, what insights you've had from that experience that have informed some of your other clinical and research work? Um, I think naively, um, a lot of professionals in all sorts of fields that work with children are taught about um, some kind of traditional research-based norms. And it wasn't until I realized that that research and all those strategies weren't working for my own children um, that I started expanding uh, the data that I was looking at and started finding more and more. And I had a, actually a great um, mentor that kind of helped support some of that work. I started finding more and more that the data was really accurate for a subset of the population, mainly white middle-class kids who lived in university towns because those are the kids who go to research studies. Uh, but that when you started expanding that data, you got different outcomes and the data didn't hold. I mean, even things like Bowman's parenting styles with authoritative and authoritarian, like that data didn't hold outside of a specific population. And Head Start helped shift that. It was one of kind of the early pushes. Um, but so much of what I was hearing from educators and therapists and pediatricians and just everybody who was working in child development was assuming that brains could think and assuming that brains felt safe and assuming that brains could trust other humans. And, and the advances that we have in neuroscience just don't support that. Um, so it was, I think, my own experience as a parent that allowed me to really push more into, wait, I know I'm doing everything by the book. Like I've got degrees in this and it's still not having the outcome that people say it should have, like what's going on here. Um, so I had to start looking at, you know, a whole other area of research. And so I think that's the biggest thing that um, has helped me shift professionally is being able to tell other parents when they come in, like, no, no, like it doesn't matter the reinforcer. It's still not going to work in this situation or nope, like you could be the best parent in the world and your kid would still be doing this right now. Like this isn't just an issue of you not being consistent enough or, you know, having the right motivator, um, which I found has been incredibly freeing for a lot of parents and can take off so much guilt. And when we can take away the idea that this is a problem to be fixed and push into the idea that this is a relationship to be developed, all of a sudden the work looks so different and people really can delve into it more and they're invested in it more. And you see a lot more healing, both within the adult that's trying to do the work and with the kiddo. I, I love that reframing that we're moving away from a problem to be fixed to a relationship to be developed. I mean, that is so clear. And, you know, so much of what we, we have been finding, so we're in working with educators and psychologists and mental health counselors and, and law enforcement people, we, we talk about the shift away from what's wrong with you to what happened to you. Uh, 
But I love that framing of away from problem to be fixed to relationship. And that's what we're seeing more and more as well, that, that it's those positive relationships that really make the difference, regardless of what, what the issues. I'm curious how you see that um, sort of playing out as you're working with parents, with teachers. What, what are some of the things that you coach them on that, that really do it differently? Um, so I use a really big brain-based model. So we have to understand the brain. And so I help parents and all the adults that are kind of working on the team understand that. And I often really help the kids understand their own brains, um, which again can help with that shame piece. I mean, I can't tell you how many kids have gone, oh, so it's not my fault. No, sweetie, like it's not your fault. Um, brains do what brains do. And so when we can help parents um, understand like their child's brain it doesn't mean that it's not hard like it's still hard and I, I'm parenting this I know that it's still hard but it helps you have that reframe where you can see each other as being on the same team as opposed to working against one another in kind of a competition where only one person can win um, and so when you're doing the work with the child instead of for the child or against the child you can tolerate a lot more. Um, you are able to choose, I think, the battles a lot more easily. So you can put some things back and focus on the things that really are more important. Um, I think a big piece is understanding that development really needs to be at the heart of this work. And so um, a lot of times what we're expecting for kids is not what they're able to actually accomplish. And so we have to start, you know, kind of I got to be scaffolding at where they're actually able to be successful and then work up from there. And so I think a lot of parents really benefit from that. Um, and then just understanding that there's there's sort of these two pieces to, to teaching a child. And one is calming that brain down. And so dealing more with that limbic system and that stress responsivity, like that's the first goal. We got to calm that brain down so that we can access cognitive areas. And then we need to teach and give experiences so that we can learn something different. Um, so instead of, you know, thinking about, well, what consequence does this child need? Thinking more along the reframe of, well, what experience does this child need so that we can learn to do something new? Um, and, but really understanding you can't do those two things a lot of times simultaneously. You have to pause and deal with the stress and then do the teaching that would be more cognitive and frontal lobe. That, that's such a great distinction. And I think so clear and uh, so hard, you know, so many people miss that. One of the favorite phrases I've learned the last few years is amygdala hijacking. And when, when that, there, Bessel van der Kolk has this wonderful phrase that trying to uh, trying to talk to your amygdala is like shouting at a crying baby. <laughs> it's, you know, you just got to soothe the baby first before any of that other stuff happens. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious, a lot of people listening are, you know, working in these fields. Um, when you work with parents, teachers, uh, other professionals, what are some of the calming type activities or the actions that you encourage people to take? What, what can people actually do? 
Um, well, it kind of depends on um, how stressed out the child is. So that's one of the things that I, I try to teach is that especially you can listen to for verbal kids, you can listen to their language and identify what level of arousal or stress they're at. So kind of going from Bruce Perry's work. And so it depends on what part of the brain we're trying to kind of, you know, speak to and work with. Um, I also really encourage people to understand we're not always trying to just calm the brain. We're trying to regulate it. Um, so for a lot of children who are used to staying in that higher level of arousal, the idea of somebody coming in and calming them actually can feel really threatening. But somebody coming in and organizing them um, is a lot more accepted. And I think that um, kind of our, our Western society has kind of developed this idea that even practices like mindfulness or, you know, different relaxation techniques have to be slow. Um, and that is actually, um, uh, it will create what's called a paradoxical effect in a lot of kids with this higher level of arousal, whether they'll push against it so hard, they end up kind of going even higher. So for example, an alternative to calming somebody might be, you know, doing a dance party where we're organizing them to a song, right? So we're giving them rhythm, but we're doing that in relationship. And so you know, thinking about strategies that push me in to that relationship as opposed to pulling me back. We might, um, uh, one of my favorites is just getting kids laughing. So shared laughter releases <laughs> oxytocin. Um, so, you know, I always tease that knock-knock jokes are a great way to kind of calm down a brain because in our society, um, our brains are very programmed to pay attention to knock-knock jokes. So if you say knock-knock, like the kid has to be really stressed out to not get kind of curious who's there. Uh, and so just, you know, throwing out those words, get kids curious and kind of we laugh and then that stress can come down. So there are lots of, you know, kind of... Um, fast strategies like that, um, you know, strategies where we teach our brains and their brains to kind of just take a moment. So I might talk to parents and educators about kind of the power of the pause and giving kids a moment um, to see if just a couple seconds can flip them up to that frontal lobe. And then you get the, the, the behavior that you want. Like this morning, I told one of my adopted kiddos, um, to do something as we were getting ready for school. And I got that really quick limbic reaction, right? And I just paused. And about two seconds later, she said, okay, I'll do it. I reinforced that. Whereas if I had jumped on the reaction, I would have ended up reinforcing the reaction without giving her brain the opportunity to get to the intentional behavior. Um, and then of course you can get into all sorts of more bodily things, tapping, um, chanting and then classrooms that's a great one and a lot of elementaries do this you know well they'll have like class callbacks you know class class yes yes and you know those things are actually quite regulating um just taking kids off guard and and there's a different way to do that with younger kids and older kids like teenagers are great because you can get kind of sassy um and so for teenagers you know i might tease them about a show that they're watching like you've got to be kidding me like how can you enjoy that and I'll, I'll push into that in kind of this teasing way where we're pulling into relationship. We're sort of doing that bantering work together, but those really lovely hormones are getting released that actually like calm down that whole stress response system. So when parents can learn to do um, those sorts of strategies on a regular basis, they can often prevent the arousal. 
Um, and then in classrooms, those are actually incredible strategies to use because you can use them group wide. You can do them really quickly. You can insert them in super fast in a transition or kind of, you know, pretend that you got thrown off track a little bit when in reality, you just saw that a kid was starting to escalate and you wanted to pull that kind of kid back in. Um, so just strategies that really focus on calming down the brain, or I see, I just said it too, regulating that brain, stopping those stress hormones from escalating, bringing kids into rhythm. Those are kind of the strategies that we look at. It's nothing magical. Um, I think it all just sort of makes sense once you see it in front of you. We just don't often think about using those strategies as a um, behavioral intervention because they seem so playful. And that's actually one of the reasons they work so well. Um, but we tend to resist playing when we think people have done something inappropriate. Uh, great distinctions. I, I love that clarification uh, between regulating and calming. Because, uh, you know, I'm sure a lot of listeners have seen these window of tolerance charts where, we, you know, it's, it's not that we want to stay calm. We want to stay sort of in that middle spot. Right. Uh, and all of those co-regulating actions that you talked about, which are so great at building relationships, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's a, that's what's fun. What, what has struck me so much is I've learned more about this. I have a number of friends who've um, worked with indigenous people's culture mm -hmm. and indigenous people's learning. I mean, if you look at the, the history of humankind, these are the things that we did. We used to do, right? Chanting, dancing, uh, bantering in public with each other. That 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 was a way that we uh, historically often have been, and and a lot of that has dropped out, particularly in online culture. I think uh, ch chanting on Zoom is a little tough. <laughs> yes, but I think like pushing back against that just slightly, like. I think we're getting there because if you've ever looked at like a Reddit thread, right, that bantering back and forth, you yeah. know, can kind of be there. So I, I'm kind of curious to see how that might develop. Um, but I absolutely agree with you and would extend that even to parenting practices and how we take care of infants. I mean, infants are not really um, parented well in isolation and we don't parent in community, you know, very much anymore. Um, which is arguably one of the big reasons why so many students are struggling with self-regulation, trauma aside. Um, we just don't have the luxury of parenting a lot of times in a way that would support that development in a normative way. Well, and that actually brings me to uh, another question. So uh, we're, you know, we're having this conversation of, as we are hopefully coming out of a pandemic period. Uh, I don't know about you, but it's been kind of a long two years. <laughs> uh, and I'm curious what you're seeing, um, what, what you're seeing and hearing about the impact on our communities from the, the isolation and the disconnection. My guess is that it's having a profound impact on families and children, but I'm just curious what you're seeing um, in your, in your work, in your relationships? That's a great question that we don't all, we don't really have all the answers to yet. Um, 
So one of the ways that I found really helpful in thinking about this is that this has been the first global trauma event, right? We haven't ever lived so globally connected that we can all be stressed out about the same thing at once. Um, I saw too many movies. I sort of thought it'd be an alien invasion that got us, but, um, but even though we're all going through this same storm, we're not all in the same boat, right? And so some of us are going through this storm in a yacht and some of us are going through the storm clinging to a piece of driftwood. And so it's actually made conversation around this very, very tricky because you try to talk to a colleague or a community member about the storm and your experiences of it are night and day different. Um, and so we've seen a lot of division come out of this, et cetera. Um, arguably, I would tell you that everybody has been impacted by it in some form or fashion. What I'm most concerned about in this particular moment, I've got several concerns, but in this moment, I'm very concerned that everybody's trying to move forward like nothing happened. And the reality is something very big and profound happened. And we not only spent the past two years trying to like deal with this massive event, we spent the past two years trying to deal with the massive events and go on with life as normal. You know, we still had to get up and go to work. We still had to meet deadlines. Our students still had to attend school. Like there wasn't very much actually felt leniency. Um, even though we talked about giving grace, et cetera, the reality is the expectations really held. Like we talked about, we wanna keep things going as normal. So now what I am seeing very profoundly is that everybody right now is starting to crash. And it's because they're exhausted and it's because those stress systems went, whew, okay, this is done. Um, and they don't have much left at this point. At the same time, when everybody else in society is going, okay, this is done, let's move on and get back to normal. And so my big concern is that we are going to miss the opportunity that we have to heal. And just like any other trauma event, whether you're thinking about it at the individual level or the family level or whatever it is, certainly you can heal from trauma generations later, but the work is significantly harder. And so if we miss an opportunity to actually give space and time to heal, we're going to see more negative impacts down the road than we otherwise would have. And I'm certainly concerned about that for kids. But I'm concerned about that for parents and educators in particular, for medical providers um, in particular. And so that's one of the things that I'm seeing right now is that there's this exhaustion coupled with this burden and responsibility and guilt and shame and everything else that like, well, I somehow like need to be okay. Like this is done. I need to be able to move forward. And that's not how stress works. That's not how brains and bodies work. Um, so globally, that's my bigger concern. I have some, you know, more specific concerns with things we're seeing in kids or, you know, in adults, anxiety has gone up very high. Um, and so we're seeing that manifest in lots of ways. Um, but again, the message that even kids are getting is, okay, well, this is done. You need to get back to, back to normal. Um, like you're fine. You still need to do your schoolwork. You know, how much time do I give these kids until we can get classrooms back to normal? Um, 
And so I think that's my biggest concern right now is that in the push to return to normal, which arguably I'm also not sure that we should be returning to. Like, I think everybody that's listening to the podcast would agree that there were quite a few things that we would love to have tweaked already before the pandemic hit. So I think it's a great time to look at what we want to go back to or what we want to just go to. Um, but if we don't allow ourselves time to heal, then as a, as a race, we're going to be, I think we're going to be struggling a lot more down the road. No, I think that's a, a great insight. Now, everything we know about grieving, right, is you have to have some time to do it. And that's um, a perfect word. I think people really need to understand that this is a grieving process and that we're grieving what we've lost. We're grieving what we're missing. We've like, whether it's the vacations or the loved ones that pass, like there's a grief associated with this um, that people need to, to recognize. Just curious. I mean, you, you do this work. What, what kinds of practical actions can people take to really engage in that healing process. I think that's such a great insight. Uh, what, what kinds of people, what kinds of things might people be doing to really allow some of that healing to occur? A lot of feelings in our culture, unless you are a person that's kind of a little bit more naturally emotive and affectual, a lot of us in our society, um, those feelings won't come out unless we're kind of intentional about giving them space to. So even though it seems kind of weird to schedule space to do that, um, it's often where I have to help people start is you need to have a space every you know, week or every day or whatever that looks like where feelings are allowed to come out without being like a nuisance, right? Like that's the goal. They're not just getting in the way of you going to your next meeting. Um, and we often can do that work better when we have activities that involve our bodies, but not our, not our words so much. So for example, gardening, baking, um, walking your dog, you know, running outside, different things like that. We have horses at our house. And so um, I, you know, my husband and I tease each other all the time that if you're trying to avoid feelings, you don't go to the barn because feelings come out in the barn. Like they just, they do through that work. So kind of giving your bodies um, that space, obviously, having somebody that's safe to talk with, whether that's a friend, a colleague, a spiritual mentor, a partner, a therapist. Um, many people are finding out that they don't know how to do this kind of work on a good day, let alone right now. And so they may need to actually learn how to grieve and how to feel and for that to be safe. Um, but what you want to avoid is filling your downtime with dissociative things. So dissociation, like just scrolling through Facebook or binge watching a show is a great way to hold things still, but it doesn't actually help you get better. Um, and so a lot of people, anytime they have quiet downtime on a drive, on a, you know, sitting on the couch, they fill that space with noise or with visual stimulation. And that's typically not the place that healing happens. You need quiet. You need space. Um, very, like literally, you need space in your brain, um, space in your mind for that stuff to come out. That is, that is so great to hear. Um, and, and I think we're all thinking about how 
you know, how do we do that? So as you're talking, I said, so where's, where are the spaces in my life? And if I got enough and if I got the right people to talk to, fortunately, I have people to talk to and can do that. Uh, so I guess that's one action everybody can take is who are, who are the people that we can actually talk to about this? Uh, and, I, and I think for teachers, we've heard some teachers talk about uh, just regularly having a time so, to talk about. So what was hard? You know, what was your experience sharing it with, without rehearsing it, right? But an, an ability to talk about the things that have happened uh, and, and, and understand that whole process. So um, as, we, as we go forward, uh, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you about in relationship to uh, sort of practical strategies and how we deal with some of these issues of regulation uh, one one of my colleagues, Carolyn Eastman, who's heard you speak a number of times, uh, always shares a, a metaphor that you use, and I don't know if I've got it exactly right, that we have to be part Superman and part Mr. Rogers. Does oh, that sound familiar? Yeah, it's actually borrowing from Heather Forbes' work, and it's part Mr. Rogers, part Army General. Um, oh, Army General, that's it. That. Yeah. Part Army General, yes. Yeah. And yeah. So it's this idea that when things are safe and things are good, even if kids are annoying or boundary pushing, that your Mr. Roger is happy to see your neighbor and you know, you're able to push into that relationship. But that particularly if it's a safety issue, you're the army general and you hold that boundary and there are just some boundaries you don't allow to be crossed. Um, because if you can do the army general work, the boundaries without the relationship, kids don't thrive. Kids are not going to um, be motivated to do better. But if you can do the relationship work without being able to hold the boundaries, kids will think you're a great play partner, but not as somebody that can keep them safe. And so really for any kid, but particularly kids with those trauma histories, you need to be able to combine both of those where you're able to do the relationship, but you're also able to keep those boundaries and not just to protect the kid from getting hurt by somebody else, but to protect the child from hurting somebody else. Um, kids with those trauma histories need to know that you are strong enough and safe enough that you will help their worst fears not become realized, that I could hurt somebody or do something or get out of control enough and I won't be able to come back from that. Um, and so trauma-informed work certainly is not about letting go of all of the boundaries or letting kids just get away with stuff because they've had a hard life. Um, it's about the relationship, certainly, but we do the relationship work with the boundaries. Uh, that, I mean, that, that's such a great balance. I think even as we talk about moving into this time of healing, right, it's creating the boundaries. Uh, sometimes I think people are afraid that if we start talking about what's happened, that everybody's just going to dissolve, but if, if you've got that combination of uh, the Army General and Mr. Rogers, great image, if we can hold that combination, then you can create that kind of safe space for people uh, and really process that. So, well, we are sort of getting towards our time. Anything else that you'd like to share before we uh, close for our time? I think it's just really important to recognize that after traumas, most people need time and they need space and they need relationships to heal and they will be fine. And so, yes, it is absolutely true that because of the nature of the pandemic, 
um, it does have a much higher likelihood to be traumatizing to some families. But if you are looking around right now and surveying, you know, and seeing that you have an entire classroom of escalated kids, or if you're even looking and kind of into your own self and wondering, like, is this now who I am? Am I just going to be this exhausted and this burnout and this, you know, just kind of like, I don't care and I'm unmotivated. But we need to just recognize that those are still symptoms of trauma and of stress. And that most of us with time and support will be okay. But we haven't had enough time yet. I mean, even when you think about a diagnosis like post-traumatic stress disorder, well, with PTSD, you have to be post the trauma in order to consider that like a relevant diagnosis. And we're, we're not post anything yet. And so I don't think it's fair for everybody to get really anxious that we're just going to be, you know, teaching an entire generation of traumatized people um, because the data doesn't support that one. And we can't say that yet. Like we haven't given kids or adults opportunities to come out of this yet. So the majority of students, the majority of adults will need time and space and they're going to be fine. And so I want, you know, kind of listeners to understand that that is a, a true likelihood that while I want there to be interventions to help people who are really struggling already or that have symptoms that are more significant or that we can identify are at just higher risk of actual traumatization, if we push into relationships, if we give time, that's where most of the healing work is actually going to happen for everybody across the world. Um, and so there's, there's not a timeline, I think, on, on that, on how long we push into relationship or how much time we give. But those things do need to prior, be priority um, as we move forward. Uh, well, and I think that message about relationships uh, is, is the clear message, right? As we build those relationships, then we we can help all of these issues. We don't have to necessarily target one or the other. Relationships builds it all. So, so thank you for that. And uh, thank you so much. And thanks so much for sharing this time with me this afternoon. Uh, and I also want to thank our listeners for joining Community Connection and our conversation with Dr. Stephanie Grant. You can find out more about her work on the resource pages at pinetreeinstitute.org, which has several links to her work and other talks she has given. Uh, it also has a lot of other resources on ACEs, positive experiences and relationships, and trauma-informed care. So please visit us on our website and watch for future events on community-based approaches to trauma-informed care. Thanks so much for listening.